Welcome to 9-11, 20 years later, a discussion with four people on whom the gravest responsibilities suddenly fell on that terrible day two decades ago. I'm Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institution. Our participants, Condoleezza Rice. On September 11, 2001, Condi Rice was National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush. In the president's second term, she would serve as Secretary of State, and today, Secretary Rice serves as Director of the Hoover Institution. James Mattis. On September 11th, Jim Mattis was a Brigadier General in the United States Marines. In less than two months, he would lead Marines into combat in Afghanistan, and two years later, in Iraq. During the Trump administration, Jim served as Secretary of Defense. Today, Secretary Mattis is a fellow at the Hoover Institution. John Taylor. On September 11th, John Taylor was serving as Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. Today, John is a fellow again at the Hoover Institution. Karen Hughes. On September 11, Karen was serving as White House Director of Communications and Counselor to President Bush. A few years later, she would become Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs. Today, Ambassador Hughes serves as Worldwide Vice Chair of Burson Marsteller. The day. On the morning of September 11, 2001, President Bush awoke in Sarasota, Florida, where he would attend an education event at a local elementary school. In Washington and New York, Americans went to work under cloudless skies on a flawless early autumn day, 8.46 in the morning. A commercial aircraft plows into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Nine in the morning, the Port Authority orders the World Trade Center evacuated. 9.03, a second commercial aircraft. This one crashes into the South Tower. 9.37, a third plane crashes into the Pentagon. 9.59, the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. 10.03, a fourth plane crashes, this one near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It would later emerge that passengers had recaptured the plane from the terrorists who had hijacked it, intentionally forcing the plane down in an empty field. 10.28 a.m., the North Tower collapses. 2,997 people either died or sustained injuries from which they would soon die, all in less than two hours on a beautiful, autumn morning. Where were you? Condi Rice, where were you? How did you first learn of the attacks? And I think this is something we all felt, but how did you process the information? Did it seem at first unreal to you, Condi? Well, it was uh, a day that none of us will ever forget. Uh, started like any other day. I was actually supposed to give a speech later in the day about national defense. And so I had not traveled with President Bush. It was our pre 9-11 thinking that he was on a domestic trip. And so I didn't travel with him and neither did my deputy, Steve Hadley. And uh, I was at my desk uh, and my young assistant who was an army officer yelled, uh, a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I thought, well, that's a strange accident. And I said, was it, was it a private plane? He said, no, no, it was a commercial airliner. 
Um, I got on the phone with President Bush and um, he was at this children's event in Florida, an education event. And he also said, that's a strange accident, but within uh, a few minutes as you've gone through the timeline, it's really kind of chilling to realize how quickly things uh, evolved. Um, I went downstairs to have my normal staff meeting and within a few minutes, someone handed me a note and said a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. Now we knew it was a terrorist attack. Uh, I then went into the situation room to try to reach the national security principles. Colin Powell was actually at an event in Peru, an Organization of American States meeting. He was trying to get back. He was they then Secretary of Defense. Secretary of State. So, Secretary I'm sorry, State, Secretary of State. Colin Powell, right. And then uh, they said that George Tenet, the, the uh, CIA director, had already gone to a bunker. They couldn't reach Secretary Rumsfeld. His phone was just ringing and ringing and ringing. We Secretary, looked behind, Secretary, Secretary of Defense. Defense. Uh, we looked behind us. The plane had hit the Pentagon. And at that point, they kind of the Secret Service said, you've got to get to a bunker. Uh, planes are flying into buildings all over Washington, D.C. And to be honest, I don't remember how I felt. I just remember sort of being levitated toward the bunker, uh, stopping actually to call my relatives. You know the Rices and Rays, they would have made their way to DC. I had to let them know I was all right. And then to talk one more time to the president. And I did something I had never done before and I would never do again. When he said, I'm coming back, I raised my voice to the president of the United States. And I said, you cannot come back here. It's not safe. The United States is under attack. Karen, where were you? How did this information reach you? I was actually, I, I've never been asked that direct question before. I was actually in the shower in my home in Washington. Um, and the reason is September 10th is my wedding anniversary. And I made a last minute decision not to travel to Florida with President Bush, even though I had been scheduled to go, uh, because I didn't want my husband to think that my important job was more important than he was. And I'd never missed a wedding anniversary dinner with him. And so I stayed in Washington to have that dinner with him. And the next morning, because the housing secretary had learned that I was staying in Washington. And so he asked me to attend a Habitat for Humanity event with him. And that required wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. And President Bush, out of respect for the office, did not allow blue jeans in the West Wing. So I took the opportunity to sleep in a little late, skip the morning 7 a.m. staff meeting at, at the West Wing. Uh, and so I was in the shower when my chief of staff called from the White House and told my husband, uh, asked for me, my husband said she's in the shower. She said, well, will you tell Karen a plane has hit the World Trade Center? Well, I'm a former reporter who asks a lot of questions. My husband has learned not to take messages like that from me. So he said, tell her yourself. And he literally walked to the shower and handed me the phone. Um, and, and so she told me a plane hit the World Trade Center. And like most people, I thought, you know, a small plane must have been a horrible heart attack right. or accident. Um, but then I turned on the television and saw the second plane hit the second tower. And I remember falling to my knees and saying a prayer for the people in the building. And somebody later asked, why not the passengers? It never occurred to me that there were passengers on the airplane. Mm. Um, I, and I called immediately after that, I called my deputy, Dan Bartlett, who was with the president in Florida. And I said, Dan, a second plane has hit the second tower. And he didn't know. Um, and, and, and I remember the shock in his voice. And he said, what, what kind of plane? And I said, I don't know a big plane like a passenger plane. But it never occurred to me that it actually was a, a passenger plane. John, John Taylor. 
where we're, it, I, I have to say, listening to this so far, if you watch too much television, as I've done in my life, you get the feeling that the White House, everybody who works at the White House is in tune with moment by moment event. And of course, it's human beings. Condi's busy with other matters. Can't, what's happening? Karen Hughes, counselor to the president. You were one of the dozen most important people in the administration and you were in the shower. It's, it's, we, it's the, the human aspect of this is what I find so striking. John, where were you? I was halfway around the world. I was in Tokyo on a, on a mission that President Bush established so we'd have better working relationships with our allies in Japan. Uh, it was a shock. We went to the control room in the hotel, a bunch of us, Michael Phelps in the Wall Street Journal, others. And we looked and the World Trader Trade Center started coming down. It was incredible. I was as close as I could be to the, to the screen. And I turned around and just looked at these people's faces. They just were in complete shock. You can imagine all watching this together at the time. Faces of horror is why I would put it. So the, me immediately tried to find a way to get back to, to America. It was a C-17, Jim knows that plane very well. We got on it and um, within a matter of hours, we were on our way back. Uh, we had an aero refueling over Alaska, so we didn't stop. And we got back to, to Washington. I never forget the faces on the crew of the tanker Mm. put their hose down and gave us more fuel as we raced. And I remember the radar screen had no plane. There was nothing. I don't know. Just, just amazing. I just also remember this was a, an experience of dealing with the military that I had never, a, a long time ago, but I had never remembered. And, and it was the beginning for me, and I think for the United States, of a working together of our government to try to get things to happen. This combination of economics and military and diplomacy was, was just beginning. And that's what I saw on that plane. When I got back to Washington, of course, we had many other things to do, which I can talk about. Mm. We'll come to that. But was there information coming into you on the plane? As So, yes. so the plane remained in radio contact with somebody. You were receiving Completely. updates. Completely. Yes, we were completely in contact. And uh, just, but the main thing is you, you didn't see any other planes on radar. I don't think it makes any sense, but uh, almost zero. I mean, the commercial planes were not flying at all. Jim Mattis, professional warrior. On that morning, the United States suffered the first attack on the continental United States since the War of 1812. Where were you? How did you find out? And I'm interested, a professional warrior how I have the feeling you may have been able to process the information. Well, you, you were trained to process information like this. What was it like that morning, Jim, for you? Right, Peter. Uh, I was in California at Camp Pendleton. So this is all happening around 6 a.m. out there. Uh, like any Marine, <clears throat> I'd finished my five mile run, showered up. I was driving to work at 6.15 in the morning when I heard uh, 9.15 East Coast time that a Cessna had flown in to the uh, World Trade Center. I'd just come out of about five years steady duty in Washington, DC as the executive secretary of Department of Defense, as a colonel, brigadier general, a military assistant to the deputy secretary of defense, Rudy DeLeon, and then Paul Wolfowitz, 
And immediately I knew, I knew it was a terrorist attack. There was no doubt in my mind. We'd known they were coming. We couldn't figure out how or when, but there was something big coming. Uh, and I knew immediately uh, that we'd been hit even before the second terrorist hit, before I knew it was a, uh, an airliner. I was actually happy it was a Cessna when I first heard it, mm. uh, was, was, was my thinking that thank God it wasn't something bigger. Uh, which unfortunately was not the case. But I think the, the thing that really struck me, and I've talked to many military officers and intelligence officers since as well, was th that we'd failed. Uh, like you said, Peter, the first time we'd been attacked on our homeland, uh, I mean, the Japanese had shelled the Oregon coast from a submarine, you know, small things, but this was the first time. But there was a sense of absolute failure. This was what we were designed to prevent. And it, it created, I think, too, a very grim mindset for those of us who were going after them. They were going to pay and they were going to learn that they could not scare us, these maniacs, and they were going to pay to such a degree they would be unable to hit us again. That way, But we knew there were other attacks in the offing or we assumed there were. And so we were on our way. And less than a month later, I was in Egypt uh, nominally leading an exercise there uh, in, uh, in Egypt to show the Americans weren't leaving the Middle East, we weren't scaring, but then I was slipped quietly over to fleet headquarters in Bahrain and we began the planning to go into Afghanistan. Mm. Condi, from, from first learning about the event to first decisions, all four of you were in positions of responsibility. You had to decide what to do. You wrote, you said in a recent documentary, Condi, quote, I'm quoting you. When I'm asked about some of the things we did with speed, I want to say to people, what would you have done? We didn't have time for a lot of consultation, close quote. So your national security advisor, one of the central components of that job is to be the action control, you're coordinating intelligence, defense, diplomacy, and you're directly in touch with the chief executive of the nation, who incidentally is put aboard Air Force One, which scrambles up and spends the day, much of the day in the air, being protected by fighters, touches down for a moment in, as I recall, Louisiana, touches down again in Nebraska before the situation becomes clear enough that the president is able to return to Washington. So maybe I could just ask about that to begin with. Your first, the man to whom you report, the man who is at the head of the executive branch of the United States government is in the air, out of touch, away from the command center, the White House itself. How did you begin to pull the, pull the, how did you begin to pull together the chain of command, the simple, straightforward chain of command? Well, I would, I would highlight really three decisions, uh, two that were that morning and then uh, one later on when the president returned as being really pivotal. Um, the first point is that actually the vice president was already in the bunker when I arrived. Uh, the tra transportation secretary, Norm Mineta, was on a yellow pad trying to track aircraft uh, because we had to get every plane out of the sky. 
And so a lot of the work was. Sandy, can, can you, yes. When you say the bunker. Yes. You can't describe this, but there's a secure facility very close to the White House complex. That's, it's yes, that's correct. And uh, I had actually toured it as national security advisor. I never thought I was going to actually be there. And so uh, here we were. Normanetta is trying to get planes landed. We're talking. He's talking to the Canadians and the Mexicans and others. We're turn the plane around. I mean, he's really very central to making sure that every plane, which had now become a potential missile, was out of the sky. And one of the really first Hobson choices, and here the president was involved, I heard the the vice president ask the president, uh, the Air Force wants authority to shoot down any plane that is not identifying itself properly. And the president... uh, First, uh, there were lawyers trying to figure out, did he have the authority to give such an order? He just gave the order and said, yes. And for an awful few minutes, when that plane went down in Pennsylvania, we thought we'd shot it down. Mm. And the Hobson choice of the president of the United States having to decide to potentially take down a civilian aircraft is one of the first that sticks in my mind as a critical decision. Um, and I remember the vice president saying to the Pentagon, you must know whether you encountered a civilian aircraft. And they kept saying, we can't confirm, we can't confirm. And so the awfulness of that decision, I'll always remember. But the, the other, there, there were others. I said, I have to get in touch with President Putin. Uh, Jim will know that when our forces go up on alert, there can be a spiral of alert where, where the Russians then go up and we go up and they go up. And before you know it, we're at war levels of uh, mobilization. And President Putin was actually trying to reach President Bush. Uh, I said, Mr. President, he's trying to get to a secure location. Our forces are going up on alert. President Putin said, ours are coming down. And I knew right then I said to myself, the Cold War is really over. Uh, The other big decision uh, that we took was to get a cable out to every post in the world as quickly as we could. Rich Armitage at the State Department acting because Colin Powell, again, as you said, we were all going about our business. He was trying to get back from Peru. And that message said, the United States of America has not been decapitated. Nobody could, we couldn't talk. The president was getting to a safe location. We were in a bunker. The pictures were awful. You want your friends and your foes to know that you're functioning. And so uh, that was another very important decision. And maybe a little bit later, I'll talk about the one that gave us the phrase that will always be associated with President Bush. If you harbor a terrorist, you are we will treat you as a terrorist. And uh, that's a decision that came a little bit later in the day in which Karen was involved. Mm. Karen, also in a recent documentary, and this is describing a video conference with the president, who at this point is in, I believe he's in Nebraska at this point. I'm quoting you, Karen. President Bush practically came through the television screen. So a couple of questions. Describe, Describe what you meant by that and then also, I'm a former speechwriter. You made a decision, you, he made a decision that he would address the nation that night. Uh, he spoke for four and a half minutes. Here is the first sentence Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, 
and our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist attacks. That speech had to be composed quickly. It had to reassure the nation. It had to show the chief executive in control of the situation. And it did all of those things. How did that speech come about, Karen? Well, it was chaotic, I remember, in my office. Um, let, let me back up a little bit. And say, unlike, unlike Secretary Rice, I had never seen the bunker. Uh, the vice president sent a military driver to pick me up and bring me back to downtown Washington because it was shut down. Um, so as we drove back into D.C., um, I could see the Pentagon, the smoke coming from the Pentagon. I remember saying to the military driver, I bet you have friends there. And he said, yes, ma'am, I do. Um, it was very somber. Uh, I, I, I just remember the scene in downtown Washington. There was nobody on the streets. Um, I could see some military people with guns. It looked, it, it struck me, it was a very chilling scene. It struck me as almost like a foreign capital after a coup. Um, and I, I remember thinking, this is, this is Washington, the home of freedom and democracy. And, and yet we look like, you know, it, it was just a very chilling image. Um, they dropped me off at the east side of the White House. I'd never been in through that door before. There was no one there. And I remember thinking, this is not a day to sneak up on anyone. So I walked in and yelled, hello, you know, I'm, I'm Karen Hughes. I'm, I'm here to see the vice president. And people, took, a couple of the agents came running and took me to, to the bunker. I'd never been there. Um, and I remember my first decision, I was very conscious of what Dr. Rice just said that I'd been home watching on television until I came back to the White House. The scenes of chaos, you know, the, 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 the staff had been told to run from the White House. There was an erroneous report that there was a bomb at the State Department. So the State Department had been evacuated. The, the Pentagon was, was hit and smoking. And it looked on television from these chaotic scenes as if the United States government was basically absent. Um, and so, yet when I arrived at the bunker, I saw the same thing that, that Secretary Rice just described, this very calm decision-making as Secretary Mineta was on the phone grounding the planes. The, the vice president and, and Dr. Rice were on the phone with the president uh, consulting. And so I felt like it was very important that we had to brief the country on how the government was responding um, to this emergency. Uh, I felt like Secretary Rice ought to do it. Uh, she and the vice president kept insisting, no, Karen, you ought to do it. <laughs> and, and I remember just feeling an enormous sense of responsibility to convey, um, you know, reassurance and calm and conviction to a, for, to a very badly shaken nation. And I still consider that that's the hardest thing I've, I've ever done in my career. They, they decided I couldn't brief from the White House. It was too dangerous. Um, so the Secret Service had five Asians or six maybe surround me and they had, had their weapons drawn and they took me to the Justice Department to do that briefing. And then after I, we returned to the bunker. Was that uh, briefing live to reporters? Was, yes. it, was it filled with press? So word went out to the press and reporters, I'm, I'm sure, it's just yes. streamed to the building. All right. It was live to reporters. And we also made a, an important decision. I think that it was, I think the only time I ever that I did a, a briefing during my time at the White House that I did not take questions. And that was very deliberate. Um, we knew that the first question would be who did this. 
We weren't ready to address it. We knew there were a lot of questions I would not be able to answer. And the, and the primary mission, again, was to reassure people that the government was on top of this. Um, to the president's speech, uh, they finally led us back to our offices. I think it was around, do you remember, Secretary Rice, around 6 o'clock, 5.30? Uh, it, was a, it was late because the president came back then around 7. And so it was just before that. Right. So he so landed the, at Andrews? The, 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 you, you mentioned the thing about the, him coming through the screen. I, yes, I, yes. He convened a meeting of the National Security Council. It was the first time that day I had actually seen him live. And I just remember he just, his presence just filled the screen and he was so resolute. And he said, we are at war against terror. And from this day forward, this is the priority of our administration. And he was just in total command. And I found it, I remember thinking it was so reassuring, you know, to see mm. that. And right after that, I talked with him and he said, do you think I need to get back there? And I said, yes, sir, I think you need to come home back. And um, we talked about the speech. Um, there, was a, there was a discussion about, some people wanted him to declare war that night. Um, and I think some people were disappointed, frankly, that he didn't. Um, and he clearly was in a war mindset as, as, as the anecdote I just told about the National Security Council meeting. But we decided that the primary mission that night was to reassure a badly shaken nation. And so we did not declare war that night. Um, we thought the mission was one of reassurance, uh, but it was chaos in my office. I remember Secretary Rice was there. I think Steve Hadley was there. A couple of my communications people. It was just everybody was giving ideas and lines. And I don't know how we pulled together a speech, but somehow we did. <laughs> yeah, we pulled together. I do want to say we we agreed, and he did. He agreed he should not declare war. The one thing that I remember asking him though was about that phrase. Uh, that if you harbor a terrorist, we will treat you as a terrorist. And I said, given that you want this to be about reassurance, do you want to say that tonight? And that was the one thing that he felt he had to say immediately, that that couldn't, that couldn't wait. A lot of other things could. That, right. That was a policy decision. That was his decision. It was his decision. He said, I want you to go run this past Don and Colin. And, and I did. I went and talked to them. And I said, the president is going to say this. If you object, let me know. And no one objected. I see. John, you return. You've already said that you fly back from Japan in a C-17 military transport. You would have known long before the plane landed that the markets in New York never opened that day. The first attack, the first plane hits the North Tower and the markets just don't open. What you would not have known yet, but you may already have suspected is that when the markets opened, on the first day the markets opened after the attack, the Dow would register the biggest point drop in history. Airplanes are out of the sky. The markets are rattled. You have terrorists who have one way or another financed this attack. You have all at Treasury, Treasury think of, figure out how many bonds to sell this week, uh, figure out the T-bills. No, Treasury became central to defense in a matter of hours. Yes. So what's go, how do you sort through priorities? What are the decisions that get made at Treasury? Well, the first thing, this your question reminds me is to be as calm as possible. I mean, given what you just heard K 
Karen and Condi talk about, that is hard. But at the same time, America's alive. We have uh, terrible damage in Wall Street, but uh, we can, markets can function. I think that message was out there. But then Peter, we had a lot to do specifically. Uh, you mentioned terrorist financing. That probably occupied our time right away at the Treasury. By the way, we're just across away from the White House. I met to hundreds of meetings in the Situation Room, and I just thank Condi and Karen for all the work. But this, this stopping the terrorist financing was a, was a big deal. Uh, I think the support from the rest of the government was good. I just have a line. President Bush in the Rose Garden said, this war on terrorism will be fought on a variety of fronts. The front lines will look different from wars in the past. It is a war that will require the United States to use our influence in a variety of areas in order to win it. And one area is financial. This was essentially a rallying cry for a lot of people to do to, to this. Condi noted that there's an inherent turf battle in this area. All sorts of agencies are involved in finance. And I think she said, John, we, we need an action plan. So within a matter of hours, we had, we worked, uh, we got a good action plan. And we wanted to be sure there weren't turf battles that, pre that prevented information. So we had a, had a phrase, convey information, don't contain information. And I think this idea of stopping the flow of money was key. That's the stopping the terrorist financing. Part of it was simply to stop the flow of money to the bad guys. But there was also a lot of financial intelligence that came from this network. And, and we were, were emphasized that. That was a part of the spirit. We, had, we set up a war room in the Treasury. John, John can I, I just want to, on that point, so Treasury became its own source of intel. Oh, of course. You've yes. got yes. defense intel. You've got CIA, established intel agencies. But Treasury develops its own source of intel on the terrorists. Is that correct? Yes, but of course, we're depending on the intelligence agencies. And this right. is something which I think is important. I think the coordination or the cooperation with uh, the state and defense department was key. We, we didn't have enough of that. We set up a little of a, a, a poster in the treasury, the North Lo Lobby, and said, we are at war. Are you doing all you can? And so the idea is that we were we were work, trying to work as much as we can. And, and by the way, I, in many meetings in the Situation Room, I'd make a comment about the economics and <laughs> the Secretary of State or Defense, oh, there goes Taylor again, talk about the economics. And the thing is, it was hard to get it, get it in. Let me mention one other thing. I think the international support was huge. We spent a lot of time on the phone, first with the G7, and then that's, that spread out. I've never experienced such cooperation. Everybody was our friend. It just, it, it didn't last as long as I would like, but everybody was our friend and that made it possible to do things we couldn't have done otherwise. Um, the uh, UN Security Council helped, uh, Condi helped. And I mentioned one other thing, which I was kind of proud of at the time. There was a re report of the 9-11 Commission It came a little later. Um, it gave us an A minus. It was the only A. <laughs> there were C's and there were D's, even an F. So I'm sure they missed the important parts and they just, oh my gosh, treasuries, we got to give them some grade. Anyway, we got an A, a minus and, uh, and a C of C's and D's and F's. So 
I'll stop there. Jim Mattis, you went to war. You went to war between Vietnam and Afghanistan. There had been conflicts, of course, from Grenada to bombings in, in the Balkan Peninsula, Serbia and so forth. But what, as a professional, what was it like to be fighting on behalf of a nation? I don't know how to put, this is a crude way to put it, but the nation was roused and angry and righteous and unified. Did that make a difference to you as a professional? Not really. Uh, I, I would just tell you um, that really what, what happened was many years of naval deployments, at least I, I'll tell you because I was a tactical parent in the Naval Service, Navy Marine deployments, this was situation normal, crisis deployments, routine deployments. Uh, there was a conviction best summed up by one of my, uh, my Marine from New York, who by the way was Muslim, uh, who told me this is a perfect war, General. They want to die and we want to kill them. I mean, I, I'm giving you the rough soldier's humor that allows them to go forward into the uncertain terrain of the battlefield with a certain amount of conviction. And he summed it up, I think, for a lot of us. And the international support that John was talking about was immediately felt in the military area as well. And the CIA military connection uh, that that's really restarted there um, has held all the way through to this day, where the military relations of trust and the CIA military uh, uh, spirit of collaboration unleashed, I think, a very effective early campaign in Afghanistan. Uh, when we were having to do things that were at the limit of man and machine. They were so far inland. Uh, Dr. Rice and the State Department team were getting us air bases up on the northern flank of Afghanistan, this sort of thing. But really, it was what we do. And we had the most important thing was we had the logistics legs to do it. Uh, we had 11 nations come in without a whole lot of, of MOUs or treaties or anything else just show up. Uh, we, we had the Norwegians there and the Jordanians, the Turks, Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians. Um, the Germans were there. I, I just checked to make sure they were on our side this time. They were, so tally-ho, let's go. Uh, and, but we were united as far as going after the terrorists. We lost much of that unity of purpose with the attack into Iraq uh, a year and a half later, two years later. But at that time, it was... Uh, exactly what a national security advisor uh, who gave a one-hour class to all new brigadier generals and rear admirals that I was in. The advisor was Dr. Condi Rice, and she said, we do things with our allies, not to them. And I'd never seen a finger 18 inches long as she instructed us on this primary uh, thing. But another point to bring up, for those of us like me who'd been dealing with the Middle East since 1979, um, we had no doubt about this, this the, the maniacs we were up against. Um, and they scared our Muslim buddies more than, uh, more than the, anyone else who had to live alongside them. And I've never fought them without Muslim troops alongside me. 
but it really reminds us all that in 1984, George Shultz gave a speech as Secretary of State in New York City, 17 years before 9-11, and he warned of this very thing that we're going to lose innocent people. We're going to have to preempt this. And so there is, for those of us who've been studying this, this phenomenon, there was for us an effort to actually keep people from lumping it all into one big amorphous mat and identify which parts we had to go under uh, or go after. And I bring that up because at times we have still had people come into positions uh, in offices who were not aware of all these different fragments and you did not want to unify them with your own efforts. You needed to keep them fragmented and work one against another and frankly, I've slept peacefully among murderers uh, in order to fight for this country uh, against other people that were a threat to us. Mm. Back over to you, um, Jim. Jim, I just wanted. Uh, Peter, can I just can I of just course. one point because Jim said something about allies, and uh, for me, one of the most incredible moments was the morning after 9/11 when I went down to my office about four o'clock in the morning and. Uh, our ambassador to NATO was on the line, Ambassador Nick Burns. And uh, he said, um, NATO wants to vote Article 5. An attack upon one is an attack upon all. And we had always assumed that Article 5 of the so-called Washington Treaty of 1949, we would always uh, have to invoke it to help Europe. Uh, if Europe had been attacked by the Soviet Union, an attack upon one as an attack upon all meant we would sacrifice London, Washington for London if necessary. And here at that moment, the only time in its history that Article 5 was invoked was NATO to, uh, to secure us. And uh, we, that we did not the, request that. We did not request that. Uh, NATO I didn't know that. decided that they wanted to do it. And I remember, remember Nick saying, do you think it's okay? I mean, it was something we'd never actually even thought, uh, thought about. And, and I just remember thinking it's good to have friends. Here's a question that I feel I have to ask. I don't particularly want to dwell on it. We'll come to lessons in a moment. But we're still at the very beginnings of responding to 9-11. Jim just said, uh, well, actually, I was struck by the contrast between you as civilians. It's worth noting that the administration had been in office eight months. In some basic way, you were all professionals Karen had been a reporter. John knew everything there was to know about economics. He'd served on the CEA. Condi had been in and out of government already. You knew what you were doing, but those specific jobs, there's still, there's, you're still learning a certain amount. We go to Jim, and Jim says, in the military, we knew this was going to happen. We were trained for it, and off we went. Just as, uh, Just a kind of... Um, almost technical acceptance of what had taken place. All right, Condi, I was very struck. Again, I'm referring to the- to a, about that Because we had just been through a presidential campaign. It was a complete shock to me, not coming from the military. I'd worked in the governor's office for, for then Governor Bush. Um, it was a, that morning was a complete shock to me. We had, we had a domestic agenda planned for the fall. We were pushing education reform. Um, it, it just, um, I, we had just been through a presidential campaign and it struck me that morning that not once had President Bush been asked about Al-Qaeda or about Osama bin Laden. 
He'd been asked every question under the sun that I could imagine, and not once had he been asked about Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. And Karen is making a point that I think uh, I'd like to underscore, because I was a professional. I knew about Al-Qaeda. I knew who Osama bin Laden was. I knew they had attacked in 93 and in 98 at the embassies and with the coal. In fact, we had had to deal with the question of whether we would do something about the attack on the coal, which took place, the USS Coal, uh, an American warship, just before the election. And uh, we didn't want to interfere with the the Clinton administration. And we also uh, felt that we didn't want to do something pinprick-like, which was President Bush. So we knew that this was there. But what I didn't have the imagination to see was the use of commercial airliners against the Twin Towers and the Pentagon from inside the United States. Like every other national security uh, person, my view as an American with two oceans that protected us and with uh, peaceful neighbors to the North and South, my view of security was that was something that happened out there. The idea that it would happen in one of our cities and then to our Pentagon, that's where the shock was. And then we had to fight an entirely different kind of war now. And so, uh, yes, we were professionals. Um, It is interesting. The other point I wanted to emphasize is presidents come in knowing what they want to do. I always say in campaigns, they say, on day one, I will. And of course, on day one, they won't because they'll suddenly realize it's much more complicated. But do you know who the visitor to the White House was on September 8th? It was Vicente Fox of Mexico. Because what President Bush intended to be his first foreign policy emphasis was what he called the neighborhood, Mm. Mexico and Latin America. Mm. So, Condi, in this documentary in which both you and Karen appeared. I'm pursuing the same point. You said, in honestly, I thought it was quite a compelling and in some ways a moving moment. You said, um, by definition, we had failed because the attacks happened. All right. Now I'm coming. It's been 20 years and I'm not asking for a kind of political, just as a kind of analytical matter, my mind goes to Don Rumsfeld's famous, the late Donald Rumsfeld's famous formulation about your real problem is unknown unknowns. That is to say, was there a systemic failure that you identified soon or that you've identified with the benefit of two decades of mulling it over and reading and writing about it or is it just the nature of history that the unexpected can happen no matter how thoroughly prepared a nation is? How do you deal with that basic question? Every incident of like this in history, if you look back, you could have seen it coming. Of course. And the problem is that uh, either your imagination or the way that you're organized prevents you from seeing it coming. And I think in our case, it was the way that we were organized. 
We know, for instance, that despite uh, the fact, uh, as Jem has mentioned, of, of what we were experiencing in the Middle East, of the fact that we knew these terrorists existed, that the 93 bombing had happened at the, uh, the, in New York before, uh, but despite that, um, we had intelligence organized so that the CIA did what was foreign and the FBI did what was domestic. And it turns out that that scene between domestic intelligence and foreign intelligence was one of the biggest problems. If the FBI and the CIA had talked on September 8th, 2001, the way that they would talk today, the FBI probably would have told the CIA that there was this guy named Musawi who was taking flight lessons in Arizona and only wanted to know how to go one way. If they had been talking, somebody would have known that on September 8th, Hamzi al-Mitar, who would become one of the hijackers, had made a phone call from San Diego to Afghanistan. If anybody had known that Hamzi al-Mitar was in San Diego, spotlights would have gone off because he was a known terrorist. But we weren't organized in a way to make that seem between the soil of the United States and what happened outside the country for very good reasons. Uh, you know, again, and no attacks on our territory for 100 years. But more importantly, because we had civil liberties concerns right. about the sharing of foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence and what that meant. And so I think this really is, it was a systemic failure in that sense. Uh, maybe uh, if you ask me, what are we left with now? We're left with a better awareness that we, there's no such thing as foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence. They mm. have to be married. But yes, I think that, and, and I've said before, you know, I feel great remorse because as Jim said, uh, people in the military were saying we failed. Um, I felt we too had failed. We'd done everything we knew how to do, but by definition, we hadn't done enough. Could I move? I'm thinking we've been in the moment. We've been on that day 20 years ago. Now let's come to today. You've all been describing, and I've been reading up to, to prepare for this, a government that functioned, I believe this is fair to say, uh, with just remarkable determination and a lot of just straightforward competence on the civilian side, people overcame their sense of shock. They worked through the numbness. They did what they had to do. On the military side, we're trained for this. We knew it was coming. Off we go. And now you may disagree with my premise here. And if you do feel free to say so by all means, but I think it's also fair to say that as we mark this 20th anniversary, a lot of Americans feel a certain sense of loss. What happened to the unity, the competence? Brett Stevens in the New York Times just this week, quote, uh, he's talking about the, the uh, memorial on the site of the World Trade Center in New York, quote, water cascading into one void, then trickling out of sight into another has never felt more fitting, close quote. Okay. Jim, let me start with you, if I may, on this, this lessons learned. How did, what, what has happened in these last two decades? 
We begin our airstrikes in Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001, and on December 22nd, a new government of Afghanistan takes office. Time elapsed from the first airstrikes to a new government. In other words, to a victory, two and a half months. We remain in Afghanistan another two decades and then withdraw this past summer in Correct me again, feel free to correct me, but in what I would regard as shocking disarray. Again, Brett Stevens in the New York Times just this week, quote, we find ourselves commemorating the first great jihadist victory over America in 2001, right after delivering the second great jihadist victory over America in 2021. So Jim, what happens between, what has happened between a sharp, quick victory and where we are today. Peter, you have to look at the, the two fundamental elements of, of radical jihad, violent jihad. The Shia side, supported by Iran, you know them and I know them as Lebanese, Hezbollah, and associated elements, declare war on us in 1983. The Al-Qaeda, Sunni side, associated uh, elements, ISIS, and all those, in the mid-90s, they declare war. They're fighting a long war. Uh, and war is a fundamentally unpredictable phenomenon. You cannot predict where it's going to go. And like any crisis, you're in, and, and war is always a crisis, uh, even if you start managing it as if it's an everyday operation, because it remains unpredictable. What you have is a race between time and knowledge. And as the new knowledge comes in, you have to adjust things. I think what happened was we failed to create a strategy that kept that unity together at its primary strength. Uh, that we that that unity we all saw from our allies and and even from some of the most unlikely people. I mean, Russia is the first foreign country to put up a memorial to our killed on 9/11 over on Bayonne, New Jersey side. Uh, a single teardrop that's about 20 feet tall uh, held and you look through the two towers that are holding it. Uh, I bring this up because the CIA and the US military are the two parts of our government organized for, for a competition. That's all they deal with. In their thinking about the world, it's compete, compete, compete. So for us, we could go forward and say, this is what we do. The larger issue of, a, of an integrated national strategy is one that uh, I would say, if you are going to have a limited war, then you make very clear the limited political end state. You do not put troop caps on. I was under a troop cap in my first 30 days ashore. Already troop caps had been imposed on me. Why did we cap it? As a gold star mother put it to me once when I was sitting in her living room with her husband and her daughter talking about the son they had lost, she said, if the generals asked for 20,000 and you have a million troops, why didn't you send 40,000? You know, this is a gold star mother who has paid, who has put her son on the altar of freedom and lost him. Um, and how do you answer someone that we would respond instead of limiting and defining our war aims for the long term, 
so that we know what we want a better peace to look like, we limited our military means. We have raised an entire generation of soldiers now who think it's normal to fight with no reserve in theater because they're under such limit. I mean, right down sometimes to how many dozen troops we can have on a certain operation imposed politically. And I think what happens then, because you don't get the strategy right, we had the strategy right going in. I no doubt whatsoever. But when we are going to sustain the effort, a strategy is an appetite suppressant. It keeps you from going too far on certain things. But you want to put in all the troops you need plus a reserve to end it uh, as quickly as you can, the military side of it. And at some point, there's a transition where treasury guys and state people are doing more than you're doing, education are doing more than you're doing, that the military maintains the security. And I think it was that failure to think strategically in the longer run. And we've got to bring up Iraq at this point. I am flown out of Afghanistan in March. Uh, airplane comes in, takes me back to fleet headquarters. And they tell me an airplane's waiting. I have to go back to California and get the 1st Marine Division ready to invade Iraq. And I said, why? And the Admiral says they think it, Iraq had something to do with 9-11 and they've got weapons of mass destruction. I said, they can't move without our bombers bombing them over Southern Watch and Northern. They said, Brigadier General, go back and get the division ready to go to war. Already we were shifting our special forces, our Marines, over to another fight and and it hit me personally and and so i stopped thinking frankly about afghanistan after all we'd won right war is unpredictable enemy in for an unlimited war we wanted a limited war but we didn't define the limits politically we only defined them militarily and now the table is set for a very bad outcome against an enemy that's been fighting a long war against us since 1983, 1995. Yeah, if I could just uh, right here in terms of this idea of the long war, um, I would agree with Jim, but I maybe would put it a little bit differently. I think we allowed the wrong narrative to emerge about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about Afghanistan, I actually think Korea. Now, why do I say that? We fought to a stalemate in Korea. We've still never won that war. It's still an armistice. It's 70 years later, and we have 28,000 American forces in South Korea because we do not believe that the 500,000 man sophisticated South Korean force can hold off that crazy man to the north. And so the right narrative for a war that, by the way, President Bush said in his address to the Congress uh, on September 20th, he said, this is a war that I will that I will not be won on my watch. I will pass it to my successor and to my successor and to my successor. So when I hear this is our longest war, I say, no, our longest war was actually is still Korea. It's still underway. And oh, by the way, Korea was not democratic for decades. We had a government in, North, in South Korea that was actually a military dictatorship, and we stayed. And so we probably didn't set 
the, and I don't know where the narrative got set, but we probably didn't set it correctly, that there would be a military side to this. And then there would have to be a long period where it might actually be a stalemate of trying to build a country that would be stable, hopefully more democratic, so that we would not experience again an attack on our soil. In other words, we would take the fight to them. And it's not the first time that we've taken the fight out there so we didn't have the fight at home. And so I don't think it, uh, I think over time that narrative of what we were trying to do in Afghanistan uh, deteriorated uh, to one of we need to get out. Condi, Jim, uh, Jim raised Iraq. And speaking of narratives, here's the narrative. It's as easy as can be. Afghanistan was a war we had to fight and the nation was unified in fighting that war. And then your chief executive decided to invade Iraq in March, 2003. And our allies said, what? And a lot of the American people began to say, what? So, you know, you've been, you were there and you've been thinking about things for 20 years. So I have a feeling you have an answer. You have a way of handling that narrative. How do you handle that? Yeah, well, uh, it's really interesting because after being told that we'd not connected the dots on Afghanistan and that in fact, we had therefore seen 9-11, we tried to connect the dots on Iraq. And given the failures in intelligence there and the problems with intelligence there, and by the way, I don't blame our intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to follow the, uh, the weapons of mass destruction programs of a government, an opaque government that's hiding them. But it wasn't as if Saddam Hussein suddenly emerged on the Bush administration's watch. We'd fought a war against him in uh, 1990, a war that also, by the way, had ended in an armistice. We were trying to hold him in check by uh, what the president calls Swiss cheese-like sanctions that were falling apart under the uh, UN's inability to uh, to continue to, to carry them out. He was shooting at our aircraft uh, every day. I remember one of the first conversations with Don Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, was what happens if he actually gets lucky and shoots one of our planes down? Then what do we do? And so Saddam Hussein was a threat. We thought that he was rebuilding his weapons of mass destruction. And the question was, do you wait until he's rebuilt them? Or do you do something about it now? And you say, Peter, our allies said what? Mm -hmm. Let's remember some of our allies did, the French, the the Germans, but some of our allies, including the British, the Australians and the Polish were in with us on the very first uh, attack on Iraq that first night. So the president felt that the international community had not been attentive to Saddam Hussein's constantly breaking of 17 different Security Council resolutions, and it was time to take care of it. In retrospect, if we had known that he had not built his weapons of mass destruction to the levels that we thought, might we have done something differently? Perhaps. But what you know today can affect what you do tomorrow, but not what you did yesterday. Right. Uh, let me chime in on that because yes, I, remember I had left the White House um, late in the summer of, of 2002. And I remember seeing some some discussion of Iraq, and I called the president and asked him about it. 
And he had me fly out to California. I don't know if you remember Condi and have dinner with Condi. And, and Condi, as Condi described, looking at threats in the world in the new light of 9-11 and, and that Saddam was a unique threat, not for any single reason, but for a confluence of them, as she just explained. And I think in the media coverage, it sometimes got boiled down to, well, it was just one thing, but it was a confluence uh, of things. And later after that, um, he, President Bush invited me to a meeting at Camp David with, with him and, and Secretary Rice and uh, with Prime Minister Tony Blair and his national security advisor. And I remember being struck at here is, is George W. Bush, a conservative Republican leader, and Tony Blair, a much more liberal, progressive labor leader. Labor party, yes. And they saw the threat in exactly the same way. And I sat at Camp David and listened to them talk about it. And they saw the threat from Saddam, from Iraq, in exactly the same way. All right, Karen, you used to be a reporter. You at the White House, you're in charge of communications. When you leave the White House, it's to go to the State Department to handle public diplomacy. You're, you're at first in Marsteller now. Your whole professional career has in one way or another been narratives. What do we say? How do we persuade people? Let me quote you Dan Henninger in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. Notwithstanding his broad initial support, again, this unity that we all, all talked about, all remembered, I was just watching, the four of you were there. Notwithstanding his broad initial support, President Bush was loathed the next seven years by Democrats, the media, and a mocking entertainment complex, close quote. Is that just a reassertion of normal American politics after the shock and horror of September 11th wears off? Or is there something more dangerous, more toxic to our ability to live together as fellow Americans and to pursue policy in the world, to remain unified enough to pursue policy in the world. What happened, I mean, to again, to put it crudely, in those first weeks after 9-11, his approval ratings are th just as high as they can be. And by the time he leaves office, he's dipped into the 30s from time to time. He's all I, right. I, I, just, I do just want to mention, little Peter, he was yes. elected. Yes, he was reelected. Yes, he was reelected. That's right. That's right. But you get the point I'm trying to, I mean, you all get the point that, that we had this moment of unity and then the polarization that we recognize that has become almost normal today begins to set in and people, even people, even the president's admirers are saying, what's, what's happened here? What's happened here? Karen, what, what did well, happen? I think part of it is, is you, you make tough decisions, right? And sometimes yep. people don't agree with those decisions. And I would argue that, that two of the, the toughest decisions that President Bush had to make actually paved the way for his, his successor, President Obama, to, to be more successful than he otherwise would have been. And those two are the surge of troops in Iraq, which allowed us to end that on a, a, a much better basis, certainly than the, the travesty that we've seen in Afghanistan. Um, but, but the second was the financial rescue, the TARP, which was very unpopular. His own Republicans were furious with, with him about that. Yet that allowed the, the economy to be rebuilt and, and allowed him to hand off 
a much better situation to his to President Obama. So, you know, I think part of it is you make tough decisions that people don't like. Um, and, and maybe those decisions look different over time. And I think as people look back on those two decisions, history will give President Bush a lot of credit for making very courageous decisions that his own party um, that was against, the surge and, and the, tar the, the financial rescue. Um, so, so I think that history will give him far better credit and you're already starting to see a lot more affection and appreciation I right. think, for him and the decency and, and, and the conviction that he brought. I want, the thing I worry most about is what, what the general said about the political will to sustain the effort. I, I just think it's tragic that you know, we have 170,000, I believe, troops around the world today. 2,500 of them were in Afghanistan. And we're giving the people there the, the ability to, to live in a freer society, particularly women and girls. And yet we, we somehow, since President Bush left office, I think have lost the political will to see the long game, to see if it, one of the, somebody asked me the other day, what would you tell young people who, who weren't alive during 9-11? And I would tell them it could happen again. Uh, okay. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we face a lot of, you know, we face this ideology, this very radical, violent, extremist ideology, as General Mattis said, in, in different forms and in different places across the world. And, and we have got to somehow find the way and find the political will to sustain an effort against that. Let me, take, let me take that question. I'm sorry, Condi. Can I just ask, I just wanted to mention, by the way, Harry Truman's popularity rating when he left office was 30%. And he is a great and, man. He was oh, a great but, president. But, but I just want to make a point about the long game here. In his farewell address, he said, we will one day win the Cold War. Everybody probably laughed at him at that point. But I did want to make a point about this, uh, what we now see. Uh, it's hard to watch what happened in Afghanistan. But we bought 20 years that I didn't think possible of no attack on our soil again. And if you had seen the threat reporting after that fateful day, you would never have taken that bet. And I also wanna to say to uh, Jim and, and Jim Madison, people like him, we have a whole generation now of young people who joined the armed forces in the wake of 9-11. I know a lot of them. And some of them are in Congress and some of them are business leaders and some of them are local leaders. And we talk about the greatest generation as those who fought World War II. Well, there's a new greatest generation. They answered the call in Afghanistan and Iraq and some didn't come back and some came back maimed. But they are adding to our leadership in extraordinary ways now. And so um, as, as bleak as it might seem on this 20th anniversary, what did we achieve? Uh, we achieved peace for a long time. And I think we have a whole generation of people who fought bravely and uh, are making us better. We were down to a single digit number of minutes remaining. High single digits, but single digits. So let me ask a kind of a final question here. I'm going to go to John first because John has been uncharacteristically quiet for a moment or two. I know I've been trying to speak. <laughs> I know you have. Oh, I'm sorry, John. It's okay. right, let me, so here, let me set it up this way. The first day of classes here at Stanford is 10 days away. At SMU down in Texas, at Karen's alma mater, classes have been underway for about three weeks. 
Think of the freshmen arriving at American campuses across the country this year. They were all born after 9-11 took place. They were born a year or two years after it took place. Condi Rice in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, quote, we must tell the story to those who were not old enough to feel the horror and sadness of that day, close quote. As compactly as you can, freshmen are freshmen, they're busy, it's, they've got all kinds of demands on their time. But you know that what happened 20 years ago was important. And you know that the way the nation responded says something about the nature, nature of this nation. I'm going to ask each of you, but John first, what do you tell an 18 or 19 year old, somebody who was born two years after it happened, that they really need to grasp about 9-11? You, you tell them what happened with no holds barred. So they remember that because they'll forget it. They weren't born. You tell them, if those of us who are involved, who went to Afghanistan several times, who went to Iraq several times, you tell them about the stories of what it was like to sleep on the floor and have your suit look completely covered with dust and have to go about your day. You, you remind them like in 19, I went to college, I was in college in 1966. That was 20 years after World War II. There wasn't enough talking about it then. All I learned about World War II, I learned from my dad who fought in the Pacific. And I think now you, you have to do more of that. I, I'm teaching freshmen uh, on September 20th. I taught freshmen back, in, back when I first came back from government. It's the same story. But I think, where's ROTC? Where's ROTC? Where's the, the emphasis on the military? We, we can't forget that. It's a very important part of our culture. And I don't think we're doing enough of that now. It's going the other way. And you know, let's let's forget not forget what Condi was saying. There were some very positive things that happened. I remember traveling around the country with Karzai and Ghani when Ghani was finance minister. We went in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, yeah, and then, then in Iraq, the same thing. There are important victories and stories, and I, I think I think we have to remember what went wrong in Afghanistan. It didn't have to happen. What's happened recently did not have to happen. We were on the right track long ago. Maybe we are doing too many things. Maybe we've come, there's, that's a problem by the way, we're doing so much around the world. Undersecretary of the Treasury was all over the world, went to many, many countries, Condi knows this. So anyway, I think, I think there's a, there should be more emphasis on the military side. I always say economics is part of diplomacy and part of defense. Let's not forget the economics. We probably could have had more discussion about that today. Uh, we probably should have spent more time in economics in Afghanistan than we have, but uh, those are the things that I would I would focus on. Let's not lose attention to these very important parts of America. Why we're a free country? Uh, there's positive things to say, and I would I would stress that. Mm. Jim, your what what does an eighteen what would you tell an eighteen or nineteen year old that he or she needs to understand? I, I would draw on what John and Condi have said. Number one, put it in human terms. Don't, don't talk statistics or years and that sort of thing. Talk about human beings who are in America. 
talk about nearly 3,000 innocent citizens of 91 countries, <clears throat> excuse me, murdered on our shore. Of 42,000 New York City police could not stop those airplanes coming in. Mm. And yet we couldn't, you know, and be honest about it. And you think we couldn't have maintained four or 5,000 troops there with double the number of allied troops? to keep that from happening again. I mean, think what it's like to look in the sky and see not one airplane overhead America and put it in the human terms. But I think too, to remind them that 90 probably percent of the casualties of this war were at ages 18 to 24, because that's their age group. And make certain they know that this is the first war, significant war we have ever fought since the revolution with all volunteers, no conscription. And just what an example, what, what uh, Dr. Condi just said is a new greatest generation in the making. Karen? Well, I, I agree with everything that's been said. You, you have to tell them in human terms, the horror and the shock and the sorrow of, of that day. I would also tell them the story of a little girl I met in Afghanistan. Um, I visited a, it was, it was the, the first visit of U.S. women who'd gone in after the fall of the Taliban. Um, I was appointed to serve on the U.S. Afghan Women's Council, which was a group put together by Presidents Bush and Karzai to link the women of the United States and Afghanistan. And I visited a reading program where our U.S. government was funding a program to teach little girls how to read. And the girls were 12 or 13, 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, they never had an opportunity to have an education in their life. And so I asked them, what did they hope to do once they were educated? And a, and a little girl through the translator told me she wanted to be a writer. And I was actually writing a book at the time. And so I said to her, well, can I say something on your behalf in my book until you get around to writing yours? And she said, immediately, no equivocation through the translator. She said, she said, women should be free to go to school to go to work and to choose their own husbands. And as I was leaving, the translator came after me and grabbed me by the arm and said, the little girl wants to tell you something else. Please don't forget them. Please help them live in freedom. And the eyes of that little girl followed me home and they've haunted me ever since. And I, I just think it's a reminder of our responsibilities and the many wonderful young men and women who are we're serving and answering that call to our responsibilities to defend freedom around the world. Mm. Gandhi, summing up falls to you. I happen to know you're pretty good at that sort of thing. Well, I would tell them um, that uh, America has always been best when it acts from both power and principle. And in Afghanistan, we tried to act from both power and principle after the horrible attacks that landed us there. Nobody wanted to go to war in Afghanistan. We knew it was a place where great powers went to die. But we learned a lesson again that our security is inextricably linked to the security and the well being of others. Our protective oceans on both sides, our peaceful neighbors to the north and south, didn't, didn't protect us on September 11. And so we had to go to a faraway place called Afghanistan. Uh, we were able to keep the peace by the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform who volunteered to go there and fight for us. We were able to keep the peace thanks to the 66,000 Afghans soldiers who also died in that war. 
and the countless numbers of our allies who lost people, but we kept the peace. And yes, we did want to leave Afghanistan a better place. We wanted it to be a place where women could go to school and choose their own husbands. And it did become a place where infant mortality and maternal mortality uh, began to decline. And there's nothing wrong with wanting for other people the same liberties and the same opportunity for a good life that we have. Uh, America's always been best when it really believes in the universality of its values. And if we erred in Afghanistan in believing that Afghans also wanted to be free, that's an error that I'm proud of. Mm. Last question. We have just two minutes. Feel free to answer in one word if you want to. Condi, are we safer today? Karen said she would want to tell students it could happen again. Are we safer? We're safer, but not safe. It could happen again. It could happen again. John? We need to be vigilant all the time because it's not over. It's not over. Karen? It's not over. I agree. Safer because we've done a lot of a lot of things to make us ourselves safer, but not safe. Jim? Uh, it's not over. I, we're safer with a better organized intelligence community. However, uh, I think we are weaker in terms of unity with uh, domestic unity at home and uh, international unity with our allies. Hmm. All right. So the professional warrior says the professionals are in good shape, but I'm concerned about the people and politicians. Uh, I, I wouldn't make it that sharp a demarcation. Uh, I think it's a, it's a more cultural, societal challenge we have to restore trust. George Schultz's coin of the realm here at home and with allies, words no longer are sufficient. We need to demonstrate actions uh, to restore trust. 9-11, 20 years later, Secretary James Mattis, Ambassador Karen Hughes, Secretary John Taylor, and Secretary Condoleezza Rice, thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.